Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Dr. Lonnie Chen, a David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution and Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University. Roger and Lonnie discuss Lonnie's background as a policy advisor, his candidacy for California State Controller, and current policy issues, such as healthcare and infrastructure. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Lonnie Chen, welcome to the show. Hey, Roger, thanks for having me. This is great. Well, uh, really excited to have you here. Um, Of course, we got to know each other back when you were uh, leading policy for the Romney campaign. Now you are the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, and you're also a director of domestic policy studies and lecturer in the public policy program at Stanford University. How's the world of the academy treating you, Lonnie? You know, it's been great because uh, I've had an opportunity to, uh, first of all, to teach some fantastic students over the years, you know, really bright young minds, people who I'm sure will go on to be captains and, uh, 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 you know, great leaders in industry and government and all different sorts of of areas. And and the Hoover Institution is a great place for people who aren't familiar with it. Uh, It's a it's a think tank located on the campus of Stanford University. Um, that really focuses on our, our, our sort of logo, our saying, if you will, is ideas defining a free society. And, you know, I've got great colleagues. Uh, we've got great leadership now. Condi Rice has taken the, the helm of the institution. And it's a great place to, to, to sit and think and write and come up with ideas on some of our most pressing topics, both foreign and domestic. So um, it's been a great place to be for the last several years. I'm a native Californian, so it's great to be home again. Uh, and, uh, you know, the weather here is fantastic. <laughs> I heard about that. I heard about I mean, that in California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is one thing we've got going for us for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, when I, when I tell people I, I work for the Reagan foundation and, uh, run the Reagan Institute and I say, that's great. How do you like California? So no, it, the Reagan Institute is based in DC. <laughs> they kind of look at me quizzically. What are you thinking? You, you missed your opportunity for that amazing California weather. Well, you know, we're going to jump into policy topics here. Uh, but just a little bit more on your bio, Lonnie, uh, mentioned at the outset that you were uh, led policy for the Romney campaign. Uh, how did you arrive to become a, a policy expert uh, like me, right? You are a, a trained, or you're, you're, you're a PhD, right? And you, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you're a lawyer as well or no? I'm a lawyer as that, well. Yeah, yeah right. A, a, so, a wow, you're o- overeducated. How did you arrive at that uh, uh, kind of leading a policy shop for, for, you know, the Republican nominee. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. It's a question I, I get a lot. And I think the answer is that some of it is a lot of it actually is being in the right place at the right time and, and, and just being very blessed to have an opportunity to, um, to have done that. I think for me, at least policy has always been, um, kind of where my heart is. You know, I've done, as you noted, other things in my career, I practice law, 
for a very short period of time. Uh, I have had the chance to uh, work in politics in a number of, of presidential campaigns and a number of, of uh, gubernatorial and congressional other campaigns over the years. Um, and I keep coming back to the concept of wanting to be able to effectuate change in society and in the, in the things that uh, kind of influence our lives. And I think policy is at the core of all of that. Um, I have spent time kind of in and out of various uh, think tanks and institutions. I was at the Heritage Foundation briefly. Um, I've also been in the, uh, in the served in government as well. And that sort of further bolsters your, your work in government, further bolsters your understanding and participation. And then of course, I've studied a lot of these concepts too. You know, my PhD is in political science, but over the years, I've had the opportunity to, to study and think about a number of big public policy challenges. And I, I think together, all of those things prepared me for uh, the job I had in, in 2012, which was working for a, a great campaign for, for Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. We didn't get there, obviously. We, we lost that election. But it was, a, um, it, it was a great campaign in terms of a discussion of ideas, I think. And uh, Roger, which you know you were part of that effort, it was really a, a collection of really incredible uh, policy thinkers and doers yeah. uh, from across the, the center-right uh, spectrum. And you know, I thought, I, I thought it was a great opportunity, but for me at least, I think policy has always been where my heart is. And so that's um, what I've enjoyed doing. And whether it's on the academic side or practicing in, in politics and government, it's kind of what I've always come back to. Well, we're gonna get into some of the issues. I mean, healthcare policy, social security, tax policy, immigration. I mean, you really uh, cover the gamut, um, but I wanna press you, respond to the cynic, you know, the person who doesn't quite believe that policy is a way to affect change in society, right? So either I'm the, you know, 18-year-old Stanford student who thinks they know it all and just look at this and say, yeah, it's an old world way of thinking. Policy doesn't change society. Money does or something else. Or, you know, a grizzly veteran that's that's just seen it all and, and believes any day it's just, you know, power and corruption is what drives things, not, you know, a good policy. What's your best response to the young or old critic who doesn't really believe that policy is where it happens? Well, look, I think there are very, very few things, if any, that, um, that touch every American's life in some meaningful way aside from public policy, whether it's, uh, you know, you think about how, for example, you know, one of the issues that people are paying a lot of attention to now is public safety. Public safety, you know, safety in our communities, it's particularly an issue here in California. Um, that is fundamentally a question of how policy deals with, um, it, with, with this space, right? If you think about uh, how you spend your money and what the government takes and doesn't take, that is a policy question uh, at core. Um, the ability of the government to keep us safe from foreign attack, that is a question of public policy. So all of these things that affect our lives. I mean, yes, the, the other things are important, certainly, you know, I mean, the private sector is crucially important. And I applaud those who make the decision to want to go and spend their lives uh, growing businesses, creating jobs. I think that's great. Um, public policy, though, is one of those things where you wake up every morning, and there's some element of your life that is affected by the decisions that policymakers make. And, and I think, there are few professions, few vocations that have as broad of a reach as public policy. And so for me, at least, um, I think it's important to be engaged. Look, I think it's easy to be cynical in this day and age. Right. So little gets done. 
and there's so much partisan fighting. Um, but I think we have an opportunity still to, to make the kinds of changes to improve people's lives. And I, and I don't think you can do that outside of the policy environment. So let's talk about that. You're talking about an opportunity to affect change in society uh, through policy. Uh, you are looking to exit the world of the academy uh, and re-enter the world of policy, but not in the way you've done in the past through a campaign or service in the executive branch, which you had distinguished service in the George W. Bush administration, but you are actually entering the political arena. You're a candidate for California state controller uh, in the 2022 cycle. Lonnie Chen, tell us what is the California state controller and why would someone who is known to be a policy whiz and so accomplished would choose that entry, uh, that position uh, to affect change in society? Uh, I thought, Roger, you were going to ask me, like, what's wrong with your head? You know, you, <laughs> you, you need to have your head examined. Uh, look, I'll leave I, that to your wife. <laughs> well, right, right. She asks that question every day. Uh, <laughs> I, so I, you know, I think, let me, let me just back up a second and say yeah. that I think um, being a native Californian, moving back here eight years ago to California, um, I've observed that in this state, there are a lot of great things about living here. But there's also just a ton of problems that are, in my mind, actually relatively easily solvable. There are really difficult problems out there, you know, the, the, the kinds of challenges we see around the world that are, that are difficult problems to solve. And I think we have to acknowledge that. But, but here in California, there is some basic kind of blocking and tackling that state government is not doing. And I think that is unfortunately affecting people's lives here. It's affecting quality of life. It's affecting the ability of people to raise their families in California. And so as I studied and looked at these problems, uh, I've increasingly come to the conclusion that if I want to effectuate change in the policy environment, you know, I've got to go out and make that change. And I think being a candidate, stepping into public office, stepping into elected office is the, you know, is the best way to do that, given where I am right now and given my experiences and given you know, what I feel like I'm able to bring to the table. Um, the Office of Controller- Yeah, is, I was about to say, because that makes sense. I'm like, all right, you're running for governor, right? Yeah, no, no, well, you're not. You're going for controller. So yeah. that is not necessarily intuitive, certainly for those not familiar with California or that position. Yeah, the, the controller is the chief financial officer of the state of California. Um, the person who ultimately has the responsibility for every single dollar that the state spends. But more than that, it's also the chief audit officer. It's the person who's in charge of making sure that the programs we're spending on are effective, which we know in many cases they're not, hmm. and uh, is responsible for holding other politicians accountable for the decisions that they make in the policy environment. And so as I looked at this, I sort of said, look, what is a opportunity? What is a job where I can go in and where I can be a, a, a sort of technician in some ways, where I can diagnose the problems and where I can have a platform to talk about the solutions for those problems. And it became clear to me that controller is the place to go to do that because the controller is the one who should be providing a check and a balance on the rest of what's going on in state government. We have had uniparty, single party rule in California. The Democrats have had every single statewide constitutional office, all eight of them for the last 15 years. And there's really no other position I see where someone can go in and really, in some ways, be a fly in the ointment, right? Mm -hmm. And say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? 
does this make sense? Are you spending people's money wisely? And, and the controller's office is, it's not particularly partisan. In some states, the controller or comptroller, as it's known in some states, is appointed. It, and, and, I, and I see it as a great place for someone with my technical background, with my ability to go in and solve problems. It's, it's just an ideal place for me at this point in my life to take the experiences I've had in government, in politics, in the private sector, and translate them over into the public sector. And so for me, at least, uh, it, it's just a great opportunity. One more thing, Roger, I'll yeah. say about this is that this job is traditionally kind of a job that um, Sacramento politicians cycle through when they run out of time in the legislature or <laughs> they run out of time somewhere else. It's a landing spot, huh? Yeah, it, it's a landing spot. That's very frustrating to me because this is a platform you can use to actually effectuate positive and real change to make Californians' lives better. So, and, so let, me, and, let me pursue that for a second, right? Yeah. Uh, effectuate change, make people's lives better. But these are the, the, the kind of the noble cause that we hope all elected officials are pursuing yeah. public office. Right. Uh, oftentimes they fall short of it. But is there an example or two low hanging fruit, something you would do on day one as controller that is like so common sense, nonpartisan. But, you know, through simply using the authorities of this office, which you just described to us, would have that positive change. But because essentially it sounds like there have been people, sleepy people at the wheel in this job, it hasn't happened. What would you point to? Example or two? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you two uh, practical examples. The first is we don't have transparency into where our state spending goes. And let me break that down. Many states have a, a portal or some kind of way you can go and see, hey, how are my tax dollars being spent exactly? Mm -hmm. All right, in California, we don't have that. The controller was asked actually repeatedly over the last several years to account for the hundreds of billions of dollars of spending that she oversees. And the current controller was unable to produce a line item of spending for the state of California, which, which to me is mind boggling. I mean, if you think about it, Roger, if you ran your family budget that way, you'd probably be bankrupt. Hmm. All right. If you, if you ran a business that way, you'd be in jail because you're required to, to have accounting that's transparent and clear and fair. The state of California doesn't do that. And it's like, why not? Why don't we have that yet? We've had several attempts in California to provide some form of fiscal transparency, and it's never gone anywhere. And, and what I want to do is go in and just a very simple change. You know, I mean, like we've all used spreadsheets, right? right? Some of us have, have used Quicken or other software or QuickBooks to keep track of, of exactly what's going on in our, in our businesses. Why not have for the state of California a way to track every dollar of our spending? Let me just make sure I understand this, all right? A budget is passed and appropriated, correct? In California, yeah. presumably, yes. right? Yeah, it has um, to be balanced too. There we go, we like that. Yeah. And then it's handed over to the executive and they have to, they can spend according to whatever is approved in those appropriation lines. What we think of as just the actuals, like how we're actually spending and where that money is going, that's what's not transparent. I mean, is there an audit that takes place? Is there, is there no law that requires California to audit the books? Give me a little more con context, what's, what is actually happening or not happening? Yeah, so th there are audit requirements of certain agencies that the law prescribes and the controller does those, doesn't usually publicize them or mm. it's unclear whether those audits are actually complete and thorough, which you know they really should be. But what I'm saying is 
we don't have a sense for when a dollar is spent out of the state coffers, where exactly, who gets that money? What's the name of the vendor who gets that money, right? If the state is saying, okay, we want to build a road, great, build the road. Who is getting paid to build that road, all right? What are the contractors who are getting paid? How much are they getting paid? Why did they get paid? Was it properly appropriated? The, the controller is independent of everybody else. The controller doesn't report to the governor, doesn't report to the legislature. The controller has the authority and indeed the responsibility to go and not just provide accountability for spending, but to your point, to come back and audit it and say, where, where do things potentially go awry? And then let me add one more step. Yeah, go ahead. Identify for the people of the state of California in an easy to understand way where the trouble spots are and then hold people accountable for it. Right? So you, have, you would have the authority to highlight the inefficiencies, the fact that something oh, yeah. wasn't competitively bid, over, overpriced or whatever, yeah. right? Then you could demonstrate to, to the taxpayer that you know things aren't going as well as they should, being spent as well, not being good stewards of the taxpayer money. Yeah, I mean- you think about all the major things in California that people have talked about, you know, wasted money the last couple of years. I mean, a lot of people have complained about we have this high speed rail project in California, this never ending construction of a railway that that, you know, doesn't even traverse major cities in our in our state. It traverses important communities in the middle of our state, but not like L.A. and San Francisco. And this project, which started over a decade ago, chronically over budget, chronically late. We find out recently reporting in the in the mainstream media tells us that they have no bid contracts going to foreign contractors. This is the kind of stuff people in California need to understand. What is going on? Who's getting paid? Why are they getting paid? And why is the project not getting done? All right. The people of the state of California made a decision many years ago. They wanted high-speed rail. Okay, fine. The job of the government in California is to execute. And if they're not executing, let's figure out why they're not doing it. Roger, none of that's happening now. And that's what's frustrating to me. That's where the opportunity is in this job. Is All to right. Really so go you, in and, and identify. You convinced me that um, the controller of the state of California is an important job, even if it's not a known, a widely known position. Yeah. Got you on that. But Lonnie, you're a Republican and you are seeking a statewide office in yeah. California. Put on your uh, kind of political cap and explain to me how is it you can get elected as a Republican, as you said, in a state that has an elected Republican statewide in a very long time? Well, like Ronald Reagan, I'm an optimist. <laughs> all right. And I think, I think uh, let me, a few things here. First of all, um, we have in California a, a tremendous amount of frustration, I think, about what's happening in our state, right? We have frustration about, I mentioned public safety earlier cost of living, wildfires. We've got two massive wildfires, one of which is uh, is affecting the Lake Tahoe area, a beautiful part of the state of California. People haven't been. Uh, it's so smoky there. The air quality is so bad. People are, are leaving in droves because they can't be there. We have all these problems in California and the frustration is beginning to bubble up. And how do I know it is? Because in less than a month, we're gonna have an election in California in mid-September to recall our sitting governor, Gavin Newsom. Now, whether he gets recalled or not is, is you know, a separate political question and you can get pundits to weigh in on that. My view is why Gavin Newsom is being recalled 
and why he has to stand for this election is because people don't like what's happening in California. There's frustration with what the one-party monopoly is doing in our state capital here in California, okay? And so that frustration to me is not going away with this recall election in three weeks. People want something different. Um, <clears throat> the sheriff of Los Angeles County, the most populous county in our state, um, he's a Democrat uh, and, and he's also very colorful. <laughs> and he, he basically said, listen, when people come and they defecate in your front yard, it tends to make you think about politics a little differently. That's a very crass way of putting what I think is this frustration point I'm making. And again, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's vivid in a way you don't want to be vivid. <laughs> but the point is, people don't want politics as usual. And so there is this groundswell for change. I'll just add one other thing. The job of controller, I think, is a unique opportunity specifically because it is, by definition, a check and balance. If the job is done well, you don't want the political affiliation of the controller to be the same as everybody else. You can elect a Republican governor, uh, excuse me, a Democratic governor, a Democratic attorney general, fine. But you don't want the controller, the one who is responsible for keeping the books, to be politically aligned with and beholden to everybody else. And so that's the argument I'm going to be making. And I'll tell you, Roger, it's an argument that's resonating. Yeah, how's it going? I want to hear. Republicans, Democrats, independents. I've got lots of supporters who aren't Republicans, who are lifelong Democrats, who voted for Joe Biden, who voted for Barack Obama, who voted for Walter Mondale, <laughs> who, have, who have said to me, listen, I, I just want someone competent in there. And I don't want someone who's going to go in and be super ideological, which is not my, which is not, you know, not what I want to do. I want to go in and solve problems. And they say, good, go solve the problems. I don't care if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, I don't care what you are, just go and solve the problems. And I think that's the environment we have in California. Well, uh, compelling case. Last question on, on your run for state controller in California before we, uh, discuss other areas of your expertise in terms of the direction the Republican Party is going nationally and some of the policy issues you know so well. Uh, last question I have is, seems to me, listening to you, that part of your plan here to, to, to win this election is for the California voter, right, to vote, if they must, Democratic for governor, but then not to go down ballot, to go over and, 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 and check your name on the Republican side, and then go back to their normal, uh, you know, Democratic uh, line of votes. Uh, so, is it your sense that, and is there any precedent for Democratic voters in California not to go down ballot? Well, to be clear, I want voters to pay attention to every election, whether it's for governor or for control or anybody else. I want them to look carefully at the candidates. I, I think there'll be some great. Republican and independent candidates next year for all these offices, I urge them to, to look carefully at that. What I want them to do in particular, though, is when they think about where can I make sure that I'm sending a message to the incumbent politicians? Where can I send a message to the establishment about what's going on? I hope they'll stop at controller and say, this is where I'm going to do it. Do we have precedent for this? We absolutely do. If you look back over the last couple election cycles in California, specifically statewide office, um, there have been several examples of where the down ballot candidate, whether for controller in one case or secretary of state in another case, has dramatically outperformed the governor at the top of the ticket, the governor's election. So what does that tell us? That tells us that people are 
taking their time mm. to make decisions when it comes to these down ballot offices and not just intuitively saying Democrat, 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 Democrat. They are stopping and saying, wait, hold on a second. Here's an office where maybe we want to check. Now, obviously, uh, they haven't gone all the way. They haven't elected a Republican in California since 2006. Right. So we still got some way to go. But I'm confident with the message that I have, with the uh, campaign we're going to put together, we're going to have the bandwidth and we're going to have the message to appeal to Californians across the state to get them to stop and say, okay, we want something different for this office and we're going to send a message. Super interesting, Lonnie. Uh, always wishing you success on that. Um, let's pivot away from uh, the political aspirations and, and the uh, state con controller race out in California and uh, ask you to take a step back and look across the country right now and, and, and the state of the Republican Party. Uh, we have a midterm election uh, coming up. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, a lot of speculation on what we could uh, see um, in terms of candidates uh, seeking the Republican nomination in 2024. Of course, uh, Joe Biden's been president only for about eight months or so, nine months, but uh, there's already so much focus and attention. Let, let's start first with the, the, the Republican Party. Which policy issues kind of nationally do you think matter most to the Republican voter? Well, you've identified, I think, the right question, because to me, the Republican Party, the conservative movement is strongest when it's a movement of ideas, mm -hmm. a movement about how we can improve people's lives, not at an abstract level, but in a very specific way. What are the policy changes we can make to make it easier for people to raise their families, for their kids to get a good education, for our country to be safe? These are the kinds of things that um, have made the Republican Party, I think, an attractive coalition for many decades now. Um, I, I think where we get a little bit sideways is when we focus too much on individual personalities. You know, e even Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan was about ideas. Ronald Reagan was about the leadership of a movement of center-right conservative change in, in, in America, right? He was an incredible politician, an incredible communicator. But again, he was about this, this concept of ideas and the power of ideas. Um, I, I think, again, the, the, the party is going to be best when we are focused on, for me in particular, I think it, it really boils down to how you're going to keep me safe and how you're going to make it easier for me to raise my family in, in, a, in, a, in a way that allows me to have a job I can go to every day where I can make ends meet. And if I play by the rules, I know I can achieve more and greater in our society. And um, Republican politics, Republican policy should focus on those, those issues, whether it's the economic pocketbook issues or frankly, what you're very expert in, Roger, the national security questions of how do we keep America safe from the many threats that are in existence around the world. And that is when our party and our movement is most effective. And that's why I'm so excited that of what you, know, you all are doing at the Reagan Institute, the Reagan Foundation of actually getting people together to share their concept of what does conservatism mean to them, right? Not about people, but about ideas. The people come and go. It's the ideas that stay and endure. And that's really what we need to be focused on. So let's talk more about that. Pre appreciate the shout out on our Time for Choosing series. And it was great to have you uh, there for the launch of that series with uh, Speaker Ryan. Since then, we've had uh, two additional speakers. We, had, we heard from Vice President Pence and uh, Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And we'll have uh, 
Governor Chris Christie and Governor Nikki Haley and Senator Tim Scott coming. Um, but yeah, I mean, what you said is, is spot on, uh, certainly the way we look at it, which is now's the time to really focus on the ideas, the principles, the policies. Uh, no doubt, once we get to the other side of 2022, uh, the media will be completely obsessed with the personalities. And so it's about getting the ideas right at the outset. Um, when I think about that time for choosing series so far, um, particularly when I listen to uh, Secretary of State, uh, former Secretary of State Pompeo and former Vice President Mike Pence, and that Reagan Foundation, Reagan Library population, there's a lot of emphasis and focus on, on almost like these, uh, you know, the social, uh, kind of uh, the social wars, right? The, 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 the idea of dealing with, you know, socialism and, and versus capitalism and, and how do we deal with the, the challenges of, of the left? Um, you know, I really, it's, it's all about the kind of the, the cultural wars that seem to be defining uh, the way people are looking at politics. How does that fit into all this right now, Lonnie? Um, do you see it? It's clearly in my mind going to be uh, a fixture of what uh, candidates will be saying on the stump. How does yeah. that uh, kind of impact policy or how can policy leverage that, policymakers leverage that to advance good policy? Yeah, I mean, um, the, a lot of these cultural issues, I call them cultural issues, I think are, um, <clears throat> some of them have their roots in, in very sincere public policy disagreements. And that's where I, I tend to go to because you know, I mean, we, we talk about socialism versus capitalism in a very broad way. But it's, it's not a, an exaggeration to say that there are elements of the progressive agenda, as I see it, which would bring our country's economic system closer to what you would see in a socialist society. I, I don't believe that that's an exaggeration. And so I think it's important to call those things what they are. Uh, I think we have to be careful when we overapply these things or... Um, you know, sort of sensationalize elements of uh, what the progressive agenda is. But quite clearly, in my mind, when you seek, for example, to expand the role of the federal government so substantially into areas of our lives that traditionally, and frankly, from a constitutional perspective, should not have the federal government involved, um, you know, that to me is a, is a recipe for turning our country increasingly into a society that looks like what we see uh, in, in socialist countries. So I, I think it's fair to have this debate and discussion over issues about the scope and role of government. I mean, one of the areas that I have long been involved in is, you know, Rogers healthcare policy. Yeah. And in healthcare, uh, you know, it is a kitchen table issue. People need to know that they have an ability to get the care they need when they or a family member is ill. And you know, America should be a place where that's possible. And I've long advocated for solutions to lower the cost of healthcare, to expand access to healthcare. I believe every American should be insured. But how do we do that, right? And Correct. that's where we have a very sincere disagreement with our friends on the left who believe that the only answer is let's expand the federal government. Let's just have the federal government do more of it. And my answer to that is if you look at healthcare, that has not traditionally been successful. What has been most successful is when we empower people to make decisions about their own health care. And when we allow government that's closest to people to help them make those decisions or to help them get access to that care when they can't afford it. So uh, that, that to me is in a nutshell, the challenge we have. 
when you start talking about some of these cultural issues, you got to ask how much of this is really about this fundamental debate we're having, for example, about the course of the American economy versus something else. So I don't have any problem talking about issues like healthcare and what's going on with our economy. I, I do think it's a challenge when we start to go farther afield and not focus on the issues in my mind that moms and dads wake up trying to, to tackle each and every day. Yeah, I, but, but there is this kind of emphasis on values and what are American values. Uh, I mean, think about the lar- you know, biggest applause lines you know, from a Pompeo or a, P- a Pence have been about we have to return and be proud of American history and you know yeah. this 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 idea that the progressive uh, left is really seeking to redefine uh, the Constitution or change the Constitution. Again, you're right. It, it's always kind of uh, framed in this in more of an abstract way, but people, it seems to be resonating uh, with people, uh, you know, and I'm measuring this by audience and, and enthusiasm, you know, applause, line, more so than immigration almost, you know, yeah. if we say, hey, we, 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 you know, American pride is something we want to, these people want to hear uh, and want their children uh, to, to be given in, you know, in elementary school. What's your thinking on that and on the education? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, I do think people, um, People recognize that, I think the vast majority of people out there would say that this statement is absolutely true. America is an exceptional place with a a history that is very complex. And I think we do well when we acknowledge how exceptional and incredible of a place America is. So many people from around the world, all they want desperately is to come here. I think about my parents' own experience as immigrants from Taiwan. Why did they come to the United States? They came here because they thought there was more opportunity for themselves and for their kids. It's, it's not unlike the typical American story for many of the people who are listening and, and watching this. Um, so America is a great place. It's okay also, though, for us to acknowledge, I think, that there are complex elements of our history, but that should not be an excuse to denigrate what America is and what it has done. It is a remarkable, no other country like it in the history of the world. And I think what gets people aggravated is those who want to go back and relitigate every single element of America's history and use it as a platform to argue that America is not great. I mean, that's just not true. It's belied by the facts, Roger. America is great. But, I, but, but it's a complex place. And I'm all for introducing that complexity. What I am not for is saying, because of that complexity, we shouldn't value this place or we shouldn't value what America is and can be. Um, that I fundamentally reject. And I do think there are some on the left who are in the business of attacking America by looking through the lens of mistakes we may have made in the past. Mistakes are mistakes, but as a whole, this society uh, to, to, to think that America isn't anything but exceptional to me is just, I just don't accept that point of view. Well, well, well said. And it, it's, it's always marching towards a more perfect union uh, yeah. and, and addressing the imperfection. Um, all right, we'll, we'll leave that. Let's jump into a couple of policy topics and then, um, and then we'll, we'll talk Biden and, and hit the lightning round as we wrap uh, this up. But, you know, can't let you go without hitting on, on, on two policy topics. There has been a tremendous amount of spending. Um, 
We used to focus on, you know, hundreds of billions is a lot of money. Now we're talking trillions. Yeah. Of course, part of that is a result of uh, COVID and, and, and the necessary uh, steps government should take to respond to a crisis, but has gone beyond that. $3 trillion before uh, the Congress right now, uh, Speaker Pelosi is, is pushing uh, you know, a vote on, on those uh, spending measures. Give me your take, Lonnie, as a, as a, as a policy mind on where we are as a country on spending and debt, why should we care um, and, and you know, throw in a little inflation in there as well, just yeah. to frame how we should be thinking about this, how you're thinking about this, given that the spending, uh, it seems to be exploding and there aren't many who want to put brakes on it. it certainly didn't happen during the Trump administration. Of course, now during the Biden administration, it's only increased. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it's easy, Roger, for politicians to spend money, right? I mean, they they do it kind of intuitively and instinctively, and you know, some of the things, as you said, were were probably needed as we recovered from the from the deep parts of the shutdowns related to COVID nineteen. But we are talking about trillions of dollars in fiscal expansion right now, and that's deeply concerning for a couple of reasons. First of all, it creates and sets a bad baseline for more spending in the future which again, gets back to the scope of government argument, right? If you're allowing um, this kind of spending now, it starts to normalize over time and people begin to think, well, you know, maybe the federal government should do more of X and more of Y when in fact, we need to have a reasonable discussion about whether that's right or not. And, and spending more makes it, I think, harder to have that conversation. But there's also very real concerns about how are we paying for all this spending? Um, the biggest lie in Washington is when we hear that things are paid for, when in fact, you know, what they're paid for with generally is, is borrowing in some, in some form. And, you know, borrowing may be okay when it's cheap to borrow money, but it's not always going to be cheap to borrow money. And, and borrowing money and massive expansion of monetary supply, as we've seen in the U.S. over the last couple of years, it does lead to some inflation as we're seeing now stuff that we are used to buying is getting more and more expensive and that's a function of inflation. So you put all these things together and what you've created is a debt trap for our kids and grandkids. Um, you know, the chances that you and I are gonna have to pay this back are relatively minimal, I think. But the chances that our kids and grandkids will have to deal with it is near certain in my view. And do we want to be a society that's, that makes these decisions uh, for now as opposed to for the future? The best societies and the smartest societies are the ones that make investments now. If you said to me, okay, we're going to spend a lot of money to invest in our future, that's a very different proposition than saying we're going to have hundreds of one-time spending programs because we think we need it and we think we can get away with it. And that, I fear, Roger, is what we see now with a lot of the spending and certainly the $3 trillion dollars that uh, Speaker Pelosi and her Democratic colleagues are seeking to move forward. I think it'd be deeply, deeply uh, damaging in the long run for, for the American economy and for our society. Let me, let me ask you about the infrastructure bill because despite everything you just said, you have written, and I'm curious if you still uh, maintain the view that uh, the infrastructure view, uh, bill, excuse me, is something that should be supported. Uh, now, of course, uh, the politics in Washington are such is that their leadership, Democratic leadership, is not going to allow a vote on infrastructure until they get a vote on the $3 trillion budget. We'll see if that happens. But let's just uh, operate in a, in a fictional environment here. If you could support the infrastructure bill without having any strings attached to the larger spending measures going through the Congress, are you still behind it? Do you still yeah. support it? 
Yeah, I mean, we we see now the practical reality of what's in the legislation. And I would say, I think there's a lot of stuff in there that's great. I think there's some stuff that I really don't like. But on balance, I think it's important for us to be investing in our future. And I like the fact that Democrats and Republicans came together to strike this agreement. Um, Bonnie, you just departed from the Wall Street Journal editorial board. They, they, they don't think the infrastructure bill... Uh, is worthy of support. Yeah, and take I, take, I, take me through your 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 justification for that position. I I understand that point of view, and you know I think it's a very t- I, I think it's a tough call. But I think at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself: Are some of these problems, particularly around physical infrastructure, are they worth solving or trying to solve now? And essentially, the question is: Are you willing to take the bad with the good? And the view of my good friends who oppose this is a perfectly reasonable one, which is they think that the bad outweighs the good. My view is I think that the good elements of this, what we're going to get in terms of constructions of roads and bridges and ports, some of that broadband stuff, some of the water infrastructure, I think is important. I want to make those investments now. And yeah, it's, it's almost a trillion dollars. So it's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But I think in this situation, what we've seen is it's an important priority. We need to get it done sooner rather than later. And the other element of it, Roger, which I, the politics of this are very important to me as well. Hmm. The fact that you did have Democrats and Republicans coming together to actually negotiate something and actually come to an agreement on something as significant as this, I think deserves to be applauded and deserves to be supported. Um, And so for me, at least the politics of it are important. Even if I don't like all the policy, there's some stuff in there I would certainly strip out. I'd rather the bill be half the size that it is. That having been said, I think you have to reaffirm um, policymakers when they make the decision to come together to try and negotiate something as massive as this. And so I, I on balance, still support it, but fully understand those who, who don't, because it, you know, it's, it's hard in the context of the trillions of spending we're getting. If we hadn't done the $6 trillion in stimulus, Right. This would have been a no-brainer in my although, life. Although there is a, a, some of that will be the pay for, as I understand it, uh, debate about right. how much, right? right? right. Unspent so, COVID relief funds would actually pay for some of the infrastructure, which I think is a, a sweetener for fiscal hawks um, as they evaluate the infrastructure bill. But it's interesting, your argument is both on the actual projects that this would fund, but also almost institutionally. That sounds to me like you think the country, our institutions, need a win for those who are doing bipartisan things together uh, uh, in this environment of partisanship. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's important if we're gonna come together and try and solve big problems, which I'm for, not everybody's gonna be happy 100% of the time, right? I mean, by definition, compromise requires people to give up on some things that they they believe are important and vice versa. So um, again, it's not perfect. There's a lot in there that I think is probably extraneous, but I think the good outweighs the bad. Fair, fair enough. Uh, we got a few minutes left. Uh, I want to get to lightning round and I'm torn, Lonnie. I want to talk about Biden, but I also want to talk about a fissure emerging within the Republican Party. I'm going to try to integrate the two, but we'll probably fail. So let me start. Uh, one of the people on your policy team uh, during the Romney campaign is Oren Cass, who is one of the big proponents of common good capitalism. Uh, other people in that campaign uh, really have uh, branched out and Marco Ruby, you know, sorry, not Marco Ruby, he's on the Orin Cassa, but others, you know, kind of said, held the line opposing common good capitalism and emphasize, hey, we need market fundamentalism. And these two con- concepts really are about how involved government should be uh, in uh, the economy, 
in uh, domestic policy as it relates to economic policy. Um, give me your take on how you see this divide. How significant is it? Uh, you know, Nikki Haley would be one who's standing right. with the market fundamentalist in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and then, you know, which one offers the best opportunity to kind of get things done with a, uh, you know, in a bipartisan way? Um, to me, it seems like the common good capitalism, perhaps uh, there's more opportunity not only to make political gains and, and um, with, with kind of the Trump Democratic voter, but also perhaps to work with centrist Democrats. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to me, at least some of the conflict has been created more than is actually in existence when you look at some of the policy conversation going on. In other words, I see it more as a continuum as opposed to two sides at war with one another. I think there are some who take the argument in extremists. Um, I, I think, you know, perhaps both sides of this can be accused of having done that at various- yeah, I mean, Senator Toomey and Nikki Haley came out, yeah. you know, swinging uh, yeah, on, on some and, of these and, ideas. And I, you know, I get it. In the in the context of politics, you always want sharp distinctions and contrasts. A, a political right. consultant who I used to work with said, you know, the reason why primary political primaries, for example, within a party are so difficult is because they they require people to draw very sharp contrasts. And I think you're seeing that, you know, on the economics of this. Um, I, I Again, I think that there are elements of the agenda of sort of revisionism, whatever you want to call it, common good capitalism, there are elements of that agenda that I think are worth looking at seriously for sure. How do we make it easier for people to raise families? How do we ensure that the role of government is properly calibrated? Can we have a tax policy that accounts, for example, both for growth and investment and saving, which would be the market fundamentalist mm -hmm. side, if you will, as well as for family formation and for job and for job creation in a more interventionist perspective? So again, it's a continuum as I see it, Roger. So I, I don't like to say, well, I'm more on one side than the other. I would say that I think what Oren and his movement have done, and, and those who've subscribed to it, like Senator Rubio, what they've done is they've required us to examine elements of what we consider conservative economic policy to be. And I think that's a very good thing. It's a good thing for us to examine that and say what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and where are we going to have some disagreements. And, and you know, for that reason, I think we should be glad that we have this kind of vibrant debate going on on policy, on ideas. That's yeah. fine. But, it, you know, I think when you talk to someone like Oren or, or, or listen to uh, Senator Rubio on this, they really think that the North Star of the party veered too, more, too much yeah. toward either a purist element or even a corporate element. And now it wants to make it, you know, the North Star should be the American worker. Um, yeah. That's how they frame it. I mean, that's what they're saying, the people who are, who are, who are driving this discussion. Yeah, well, and I think the people who would, um, associate themselves with the other side of the debate would say that they've always believed that at the end of the day, the American worker benefits when we have policies that promote job creation and growth and, and investment and saving, right? And so, I, I, again, part of politics, I think, is um, how you frame a set of policies, right? How you talk about them. At the end of the day, um, I think some of this conflict is more uh, a, a creation of the people involved in it then the real kind of policy would suggest there's a difference there. And I, and I would just warn people not to get too wedded to one side or the other when it's more of a continuum. All right, we're gonna have to, have to leave it there. Perhaps another discussion to jump into more of those details. Um, a couple minutes left, let's jump to the Reagan lightning round. Uh, this is where we ask our guests to provide their favorite 
Reagan quote, Reagan speech, uh, and Reagan book, book on President Reagan. You can give me all three, two, or just one. Lonnie, what do you have to share? Uh, well, I would say my, my favorite speech is one that my my good friend Peter Robinson here at the at the Hoover Institution was involved in, which is the the the, the tear down tear down this wall speech that the president gave, uh, that that really I think set off uh, obviously a movement and, and was able to um, foreshadow the fall of communism in in Europe, uh, and a tremendous speech, beautiful uh, poetry and and prose mixed together, um, it's just a great and very memorable speech. Um, and a great so story of how to overcome the bureaucracy, right? I'm sorry, <laughs> Peter. A great story of how to overcome the bureaucracy, yeah. as Peter tells. No, no, absolutely. And people haven't heard Peter tell the story. They, 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 they should, you know, because at the end of the day, though, it showed kind of the genius of Ronald Reagan, his ability to communicate about ideas and to communicate them to multiple audiences. So, so that would be my my favorite speech. My favorite quote um, after the space shuttle Challenger exploded. Uh, and, and that incredible American tragedy, um, President Reagan urged us to forge ahead. He said, the future doesn't belong to the fainthearted. It belongs to the brave. And, and that to me is such an incredible calling because um, it, it's true and, and it speaks to America. It speaks to the promise of our country. That's the way I feel about California, that if we're going to really grab what's ahead of us, we cannot be fainthearted. We have to be bold in our thinking about ideas, in our thinking about the leadership it's gonna take. And to me, at least, uh, again, a perfect encapsulation of the challenge ahead, but really the opportunity for our for where I live and for, for our country. Amazing. Uh, home of the brave, uh, great, great way to end this conversation. Lonnie Chen, uh, wish you all the best. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you, Roger. And, and let me just say one last thing. If people want to learn more about my campaign, go to chenforcalifornia.com and you can find out all about me and what we plan to do here in California. But thanks for the time and, and great conversation. Mm -hmm.